Cultivating Place is made possible in part through the generosity of the Caddo Shaw Foundation. Cultivating Place is also made possible through support from the Garden Conservancy. This is Cultivating Place. I'm Jennifer Jewell. In a continuation of Women's History Month and our ongoing exploration of who gardeners are, where gardeners are, and what they're growing in this world, especially as it relates to improving the impact of our gardening lives on the larger planet. I'm so pleased to be in conversation this week with Kathy Kramer. Kathy is a longtime advocate for native plant and ecological gardening based on the natives of your area. And she has been determined for many, many years to demonstrate just how beautiful this concept of gardening can be. She's the founder of something known as the Bringing Back the Natives Garden Tour, which is based in the Bay Area of Northern California. But after 19 years in operation, this tour has countrywide acclaim. Kathy, I am so pleased to welcome you to Cultivating Place. Thank you for joining me. Thank you for having me. I'm delighted to be here. So, you know, I just introduced you, but maybe introduce yourself one more time and and how you like to introduce yourself, uh, especially as it relates to the role plants and flowers and gardens play in your life, Kathy. To start at the beginning, I grew up in Torrance, California, which is about six miles south of the LA airport. And living in the suburbs as I did, there wasn't much of the natural world left. My mom had a nice garden. It was lawn and non-native shrubs like bird of paradise and so on. Uh, In my late teens and 20s, I lived overseas for six years. I spent three years in the Caribbean and three between Australia and New Zealand. And I dog trotted through Central America and Europe and Southeast Asia and the South Pacific. Wow. Was Was this on your own or was this with your family? On my own. I just couldn't wait to get away from home. And I just kept going. And so for 12 years, I did this nomadic thing. I was away for a year and then I work and travel and I'd come home for a year and I'd go to college and save my money and go away for a year. So it took 12 years to do the six years of traveling thing, but I went on my own. I worked as a scuba diver around the world. I worked at a ski resort in New Zealand, at a as a bartender in Sydney, as a charter yacht cook in the Grenadines, which are a series of islands in the south of the Caribbean. And I had a marvelous life, but it had nothing to do with plants. Um, When I was 30, I finally graduated with a degree in marine biology from Cal State Long Beach. And I got a job up here in the San Francisco Bay Area working for a nonprofit, the San Francisco Estuary Institute, which did research and monitoring on pollutants in the San Francisco Bay and Delta. And Over time, I became their education director. I spent 10 years there. And then I started another nonprofit, which was later renamed the Watershed Project. And I ran it for five years. And the Watershed Project is still in existence. So at these two organizations, over the course of 15 years, my staff and I developed a number of environmental education programs that uh, focused on pesticide use reduction. And among them were the Kids in Creeks program, and we started three creek restoration groups, uh, the Friends of San Leandro Creek, the Friends of Sausal Creek, and Spawners, which are still active and running here in the Bay Area 20 years later. And our work during that time was recognized with national and state and local awards. So that was kind of, you know, my professional background that... um, that gave me the skills, I think, to develop a garden tour like the one that I run now. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it, it kind of sounds like you were also doing this concentric rings coming back in and in and in and in as well in terms of like focus and where the problems lie and how to get kind of back up the watershed for, to, to, to where yes, they it's start. True. Maybe. Uh, it's true. So uh, then, but if I talk now about the beginning of the tour and how it got started, when I bought my house 35 years ago, there was nothing growing here but weeds. And I grew up with lawns, Mm. of course. And so we do what our parents did. I planted grass in the front yard and the backyard, even though I had slopes in both places and it was like the worst possible place to put lawn, but that's what I did. 
And my stepmother in Los Angeles had roses and they were beautiful. So I asked her what kind of roses she had and I planted those roses. And I was single at that time and it was hard work to plant those roses. They're kind of big and you have to dig deep holes. And <laughs> But then after the lawn and roses were planted, I thought, okay, I'm satisfied with this garden. I've done what I should do as a new homeowner. But then after a while, I realized, oh, I'm working for a nonprofit in the environmental field. And I should think about having water conserving plants. So I contacted our local water district, East Bay Mud, and they sent me their list of water conserving plants. And I realized, of course, I should have these plants. So I took out the roses and I took out the lawns and I put in Ed Mud's list of recommended plants, which were all from the Mediterranean and South Africa and Australia. I was going to say, yeah. <laughs> but then I felt satisfied. I can kind of guess that palette. Like this is such a, like, this is such a, um, like a journey story for gardeners writ large across California the last exactly. 30 years, right? Like it, it's incredible. And I have hoped yeah. actually to help shortcut people away from my like long and hard and tedious yeah. process. So so I, and you're you. doing that. So that's what, thank that's you. why we're here. <laughs> so I, I felt, I took out all my, you know, lawn and roses and I, then I, and I planted these Mediterranean and South African and Australian plants. And then I felt satisfied again, thinking, okay, I've done the right thing now with my yard. But then a few things happened that changed my life. First, I was taking a class with somebody who was active with the California Native Plant Society, and he introduced me to the idea of gardening with native plants, which I had never heard of before. That was mm. like 30 plus years ago. And the next, about mm -hmm. the same time, I was staffing an Earth Day table uh, talking about the programs we were developing mm. at the nonprofit. And I was talking with a guy at another table about my roses that had rust and how to like get rid of this rust. And he said, well, why spray them? Why why do you even put in a plant that is going to have rust and, you know, mildew and, and you have to use chemicals on it? Why not get a native plant that belongs here? And it was like, wow, I never thought of that. Uh, and then I read Noah's Garden by Sarah Stein. Did you ever read Noah's Garden? Yes. Oh, yes. Yeah. She yes. was a good writer and it was a charming book. She's kind of the previous Doug Tallamy and uh, it was her own experience with creating habitat in her yard. Uh, and then finally, I heard Malcolm Margolin speak. Did you ever hear him speak, Jennifer? I oh, have never well, heard him speak. No. He was a captivating yeah. speaker. Malcolm Margolin is an author and publisher here in the San Francisco Bay Area. And uh, he's written The Ohlone Way, and he published Adopted by Indians by Thomas right. Jefferson Mayfield. There are both terrific books about Native American life in the East Bay before Europeans came. But 30 years ago, when he was speaking often, he was a captivating speaker. And he painted pictures of what the Bay Area was like 300 years ago before the arrival of Europeans, how migrating birds and flocks of millions would darken the sky for days on end, and how when they were startled, the flapping of their wings sounded like thunder. And, how, and there were condors with nine-foot wings wingspans soaring overhead and how early European settlers said you could walk across the creeks on the back of migrating salmon and not get your feet wet, how there were tule elk and antelope in herds of hundreds that grazed in the hills and bobcats and fox were common sights. And these images are what have driven me through my career. After hearing these descriptions of what the Bay Area was like, I wanted to take the little bit of land that I controlled and make up for some of the destruction of habitat that had occurred in order to build my house and the library and the roads and the grocery stores and the schools and all the places that I used. But the yeah. doing of that more than 30 years ago was really hard. There just weren't resources available at that time. You couldn't find a consultant to help design a native garden and select plants. Mm -hmm. There really weren't native plant nurseries. At that time, you couldn't see native plants in home gardens, and it really didn't work for me to go to the large botanic gardens that were acres, you know, big and had like professional landscape designers. I needed something that I could see that was on scale with my little garden. Um, the native plant books that were available covered broad areas, you know, plants found from the Oregon border to the Mexican border, and I couldn't figure out what would do well on my lot in San Pablo. So... I made a lot of mistakes, like I planted a California lilac. It was a Ceanothus hirstiorum, um, and it died. Mm. And when I told somebody that it died, they said, well, of course it would die. It's from San Simeon. 
it wants cool ocean air. It would never do well on your hot lot in San Pablo. And that was my first introduction to the idea of seeking out local native plants for my garden. Right. Well, and one of the things that's so interesting in hearing you talk about this this process, which is not unlike the process of, you know, Dennis Mudd down in San Diego or the California Flora uh, Nurseries development or Las Pilatas. But what keeps occurring to me is what a gift the internet has become for us in terms of being able to connect over spaces to put some of these things together. Because you're right, as an individual gardener, there was very little place for gathering and sharing information. You could go to your local garden club or your local native plant society, but they wouldn't necessarily have like who were the native plant nurseries available within a three days drive, right? Whereas now we can actually find that and dial in because the Native Plant Society was already work at work. You had your chapter. That's who where you got started. And like I'm saying, California Flora Nursery, one of our old ones, was already underway. And you know, I'm thinking of uh, that lovely um, seed, uh, Larner seeds. Yes, Larner seeds. Like she was going through this exact same process at the same time that you were. And so, like, there has been this, you know, as much as I I dread AI, and um, there these are some of the gifts of our ability to convene quickly and efficiently with information. Yep, I agree with you. So, yep. So at that time in the San Francisco Bay Area, like 30 years ago, you could only get native plants one weekend a year. Right. In a sale that the East Bay chapter that the California Native Plant Society held, and people would line up for hours. Right, ahead of you time. had to fight people for those little plants, right? Exactly to get into yeah. the sale. And when the gates opened, shoppers would sprint inside and they would <laughs> snatch plants off the shelf, and it was really overwhelming. Mm. So the first time I went to the Native Plant Sale, I must have looked lost because a man came over to help me, and he asked what I was looking for, but I didn't know. I just knew I wanted a native plant garden that would do well in San Pablo. So I said, well, I don't really know. And there was this yellow flowering tree that was growing just outside of the nursery grounds. And I said, that's a nice tree. And he said, that's an acacia. We don't normally recommend that people garden with acacia. And I was mortified. I still remember thinking it shouldn't be this hard to garden with California native plants. And finally, I did get someone to come to my home and give me a consultation on the native plants that would do well in my garden. And then I felt like, yes, you know, I can get any five of the plants on this list and I'm okay. So I took out the Mediterranean plants that the water district had recommended. I put in the plants the consultant had suggested, and I was satisfied with my garden. But later on, I realized there was such a thing as local native plants and that the native plants the consultant had recommended were really from Southern California. And I think that's because that was what was available in the trade at that time. Right. And so I replanted my garden yet again. And now at this moment, I am pretty satisfied with my garden. (laughs) Well, and it does. um, Well, it also speaks to a couple of things, this whole story, which I love. It's such a like, um, you know, hero's journey story, as it were, um, overcoming the obstacles and, and finding your way up the mountain and onto the over, other side, it is that it is also this steep learning curve that is that gap between what we as gardeners want and what the industry has available. And I think we are we are getting much closer because of advocacy like yours, like Doug Tallamy's, like Lady Bird Johnson in Texas. Like, you know, I mean, there there are groups all around the country working towards this gap closing more quickly. And um, and I think that that is really important um, at, at the same time that we know you and I, I'm sure you're the same as me. You can look down your street and know that two or three out of 10 have an inkling of what we're talking about. And those other seven or eight are still absolutely plant blind as to where we are in this landscaping world. And and that's why this advocacy continues to be so important, especially as we have some of these resources available. Okay, so I can tell we're now that you're you're really starting to be happy with your garden. 
Tell us about the germination story for the tour. At what point, because it's been years now, well before you reached full satisfaction with your own garden, that you thought, wait, there's another way to get people together and to share what we know and what that looks like. Well, uh, after 15 years of working for these two nonprofits, I had a little boy. He was two. It was hard being an executive director and being a mom. And mm -hmm. I resigned. And I had been such a workhorse for 15 years, so focused on my career that I, I thrashed around for a while. I wondered, like, who am I when I'm not working this hard? And I spent time with my little boy, and I did consulting for, you know, the California Native Plant Society and the Friends of Sausal Creek. And and then at some point, I th I thought, well, I could combine my professional expertise with pesticide use reduction, where which is what the programs that I had developed over that period had been in, along mm -hmm. with my passion for native plants, because na native plants are hardy. They don't need pesticides or water in the dry season once they're established. You know, they did perfectly well here before we came along with all of our interventions. Um, so uh, I, I somehow I thought, well, I started taking friends, like little groups of friends on tours. Uh, after work, we would go to visit native plant gardens. I would find somebody who had a native plant garden and ask if we could come over at like six o'clock on a Wednesday. And a little band of us would go over and look at the garden. And after a while, I thought, well, I'd like to start a native plant garden tour. And um, I was able to uh, get some base funding from the uh, funders that had supported me for a long time in my career. Um, the clean water programs for pesticide use reduction were like fantastic, and they still support the tour today. And I started the tour in 2005. I think I had more than well, it was surprising. I think I had more than 50 gardens on the first tour. This is Cultivating Place. As we continue Women's History Month, this week we're in conversation with one woman whose endeavors to raise the gardening bar and raise awareness around gardening with the native plants of your area has encouraged and inspired hundreds of gardens and gardeners in California's Bay Area. Kathy Kramer is the founder and organizer of the Bringing Back the Natives Garden Tour, celebrating its 19th year in April and May of this year. We'll be back for more after a quick break. Stay with us. Cultivating Place is made possible in part by the Caddo Shaw Foundation. The Caddo Shaw Foundation funds initiatives that empower women and help preserve the planet through the intersection of environmental advocacy, social justice, and creativity. Cultivating Place is also made possible through support from the Garden Conservancy. The Garden Conservancy is a not-for-profit organization whose mission is to preserve, share, and celebrate gardens and America's gardening traditions. In 2021, the Conservancy launched the Garden Futures Grants Initiative, through which general operating grants, typically ranging from $5,000 to $10,000, are awarded to small public gardens and nonprofit organizations making a significant impact in their communities through garden-based programming. Visit the Garden Conservancy's website to learn more about this generative and hopeful grant initiative and to find the application process. This year's application is now live through April 15th. That's all at GardenConservancy.org. Hey, it's Jennifer. When you think about all the things that need improving in our world, it's easy to feel overwhelmed, and it's easy to think your contribution might just be too small. But oh my goodness, in the past 19 years, Kathy Kramer has demonstrated the elegant calculus of compounded interest, one gardener and garden at a time, planting for native plants, for food and habitat, for birds and insects, for the whole interrelated joyous bank of life. 
in your gardens, in all of your places. Just start where you are. One or two plants planted in groups of five or seven. Starting where you are, plant and grow what you can and see just what grows from there. I'm Jennifer Jewell. This is Cultivating Place, and we're back now to our conversation with Kathy Kramer, the founder and organizer of the Bringing Back the Natives Garden Tour in California's Bay Area. First organized in 2005, the tour, including an entire weekend of virtual tours in April and an in-person tour in May, along with talks and videos, is celebrating its 19th year. As we come back, Kathy's describing how she built the tour and got the word out in the early days. And what we eventually moved to is the pivot required of the tour as of COVID-19. In the early days, in 2005 and so on, there were still newspapers that people read that had garden sections. <laughs> right. And uh, it was such an unusual thing to have. It was a free, it was and is a free garden tour. I asked for donations to help support the tour, but nobody has to pay anything. Um, and the tour was front page, big color photos splashed across all the garden sections of the newspapers. Um, and I had told my funders that I would get uh, 1,500 people to come on the tour. But privately to myself, I thought, I want like 2,500. Like this is too much work to just 1,500 people. I'd never organized such an event before, but I just felt like I wanted to under-promise and over-deliver. Yeah. And, um, and that first year, 5,000 people right. registered for the tour. Wow. Um, people weren't really so familiar with the internet then. So my phone was just ringing off the hook with people <laughs> afraid to register themselves. You know, would you register for me? I don't want to bother my husband, they would say. Uh, so it was a gigantic success. Wow, that's great. Over how many days was this at that point? Just one. Just one day, 50 gardens. So could a person get to, I mean, like, how did they... Could you get to 50 gardens in a day? And was that a lot oh. of pressure on the gardens? Well, no, because it was 50 gardens. The tour takes place in both Alameda and Contra Costa counties, okay. which is a huge geographic area. Mm -hmm. um, the gardens all had and have, if people want to go to the garden tour website, uh, you can look at view the gardens and you can see all the past gardens that have ever been on the tour, descriptions of the gardens and uh, photographs, plant lists. And at that time, I printed a beautiful, beautiful garden guide. Um, with a color photo, glossy photo on the cover and some color photos inside. Uh, and I had a matrix that people could look down and see, well, which gardens were, had a hillside or pond or rainwater nice, retention, yeah. or they were big or small or whatever the features were. Uh, and they would just have to make decisions. You know, if I lived in Berkeley, maybe I'd want to stick to seeing the gardens in Berkeley, near where I live, that would have plants that would likely do well, you know, in my own garden or Walnut Creek or Livermore, or maybe I want to see gardens with hillsides to see how they were designed. Uh, so people would have to make choices. And generally, they would get to like between four and 10 for the hardcore people if they really stop to look at them. The tour is a seven hour event takes place from 10 to five. Okay. Yeah. And again, like, what a gift in so so many ways, the the internet is uh, and uh, online life because as of 2020, you have the virtual tour too and the ability to look back at old gardens. So there's this incredibly rich, you know, kind of encyclopedia of good native plant garden ideas waiting for someone to dive into it whenever they want. And this year, I think you're virtual tour begins uh, or takes place April 15th and 16th. Do you want to talk about the difference between the virtual tour and the in-person tour a little bit, Kathy? And then we can talk a little bit more about, um, you know, the growth of the, the, the tour itself and then what to look forward to this year. What do you think? Yeah, that would be great. Okay. So the virtual tour started in 2020 when the pandemic was approaching. I had planned on holding the regular in-person tour as I had for, you know, 18 years or 17, 16 right. years or something like that. And then it was March and I was about to send the color guide to the printer. And then there was like the virus and, you know, what was happening. And I was just, 
I couldn't really figure out what to do. And I finally decided like the day before the guide was going to be printed that I, I, I wondered, did I have the obligation or could I even cancel the tour? You know what? I finally canceled it. And, uh, for a week it was just, I was euphoric really. I like played with my children and read books and relaxed because like the pressure was <laughs> off, you know, from this gigantic event. It was like, Oh, that was a relief. Like it was such a sudden, like, wow. And then I saw the Theodore Payne's virtual tour. They had had to cancel their in-person tour uh, before I did uh, because their tour, their event was taking place. And they held this amazing virtual tour. Yeah. And shortly after I canceled mine, uh, somebody I didn't know, uh, Ethan Bodnar, uh, had emailed me. I said to, to everybody who had signed up, sorry, I have to cancel the tour. And Ethan emailed me back. He said, have you ever considered holding a virtual tour? And I thought, that's ridiculous. Of course not. <laughs> and then we both saw the virtual tour that Theodore Payne put on. And I emailed Ethan back and said, that was amazing. Yeah. And we talked about it. And I said, if I wanted to hold such an event, would you help me? And he did. So in five weeks, we we figured out how to use Zoom, which nobody had heard of <laughs> at that time. And we coached our hosts. We got a number of them to agree to offer their gardens. And we coached them on how to be like Zoom garden filmers. And uh, we held the virtual event and um, thousands of people registered for the, uh, over 2000 people registered for the virtual tour. So it's developed quite a following now. Um, and what is important to realize is that not only is it the virtual tour, which you can watch live on April 15 and 16 from 10 to three, but all those videos go on to the Bringing Back the Native Garden Tours YouTube channel. There's now about 150 videos on gardening with native plants in the East Bay. And they get, oh, some of them have 6,000 or more than 10,000 views. So it's great that the virtual tour has this other afterlife um, on the internet on the tour's YouTube channel. That is fabulous. So this year's event, I'm still working on the agenda, yeah. but we'll be touring certain gardens. Um, uh, Pete Bayou is going to be talking about how to select uh, shrubs like manzanita, ceanothus, sages, and buckwheats nice. to help provide stability uh, and color throughout the year in the garden. We're going to have a talk on uh, how to develop rain gardens to retain rainwater mm. on site to keep your garden green longer and uh, help protect creeks from scouring and help replenish the uh, groundwater supply. Uh, we're going to have a couple of terrific talks. Uh, one will be called uh, The Tiny World in Your Garden. So looking at the, you know, amazing uh, insect life, the butterflies and the bees and the tinier things that will come to your garden and make it such an alive and interesting place if you have uh, the native plants that attract them. Um, also, this is off gardening for a moment, but during the pandemic, I added a green home component to the garden tour. Oh. So people who are interested in um, climate change and protecting the environment uh, can see homes that also have solar panels, heat pumps for heating and cooling the house or heating water, induction ranges, uh, solar um, uh, water catchment uh, and all of that. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. yeah. So those are kind of woven into nice. some of the presentations. And on the in-person tour, uh, there'll be about more than 55 gardens this year. And nice. um, 17 of them have green home features that people can talk to homeowners about. Oh, I love it. I love it. And so, you know, you've been doing this for a long, long time. How many of the gardens this year would have been gardens you've had at some time in the past? Like, do they, is there kind of a rotation at this point that people will come back on and, you know, sort of every three years or? Yes, people have their own rotations. Like Al Kite, my dear friend Al Kite, who has this amazing garden in Moraga, he was on the tour for 17 years. And um, this year it seemed like a little too much for him to prepare for the tour. So he's off the tour for the first time in a long while. Some people are every other year host. Some people go in and out. You can you can kind of tell the answer to that by looking at the view, the 2023 gardens. Mm -hmm. And I have noted the ones that are new this year. Gotcha. Uh, and if they're not new this year, they've been on the tour before. What, what I'm most proud of really is people who have been on the tour as registrants, gone home yeah. and 
converted their gardens to a native plant garden, and then they offer their garden to show on the tour to help other people. And there are at least a half a dozen gardens on this year's tour that are uh, in that category. So they're almost like alumna. Yes, they are. <laughs> I love it. They should get a special gold star or something, Kathy. That's great. Yeah. So maybe can you, you know, describe one or two of the gardens that are on this year that, that again, maybe bring out something you're particularly proud of. And maybe they're in this group of people who, who visited the tour, were inspired, and then created their own garden. And that right there is such a, um, a lovely exponential equation, right, of, of how the movement does really grow from the ground up. Yeah, I'd love to. So I have many favorite gardens and um, I'm sure <laughs> many favorite hosts, but there's one that I especially love and it is in Albany and people could see this uh, if they look on the Garden Tours website and review the 2023 gardens uh, in Albany. It's Joanna Reed and Paul Fine's garden. One day I was driving home from visiting another garden in Albany and I stopped at a four-way stop sign looking left and looking right. And as I look left, I saw like, oh, wow, you know, there's like, is that Manzanita and Cienothus over there mm. in that garden? <laughs> and then instead of driving straight to go home, I just thought, I'm, I'm going to go look at it. So I turned left and parked in front of the house and got out. And it was the most charming little garden. It's in Albany. They have very small front gardens. It's 700 square feet in a parking strip. But it was just so, well, it was so beautifully planted. But also as I approached the house, I could hear this birds singing and I got to this little garden and it was just like this magical little paradise that as you approached it um you could just hear these birds and she's got all the key keystone species which we'll talk about in a bit but she had the plants yeah. that attract birds that feed birds and allow them to reproduce there like manzanita wild rose uh flowering uh, gooseberry a native strawberry, um, gosh, uh, toyons, ceanothus, buckwheat, sages, all like nicely packed in there. And I go by that garden like every time I'm in the area and I visit it, I just stop by. And, and what's important about this garden is because she has so many native plants and has so many um, keystone species, as I'm walking toward the garden, you know, Albany is a hip place, so I'll see like somebody in, a, in their garden has a big manzanita and somebody else has a couple ceanothus and somebody else has a coast silk tassel, but they don't have enough density to make it happen ecologically. Yeah. But when you get to her garden, I always hear birds and she is one of my alumni. So she and her husband, I think, went on the tour like 12 years ago. They came home, sheet mulched their lawn and replanted with native plants and they have seen 58 species of birds oh. in or above this diminutive garden. Wow. And it's because there are enough insects there that allow them to uh, breed. And uh, they're going to be giving a talk on um, their title is it's easier and cheaper than you think to transform your yard into a beautiful native plant garden. Come find out how we did it and how you can too. It'll be given twice on Saturday May 6th. Okay. So for the, in, in the in-person tour and when you have talks like that on the in-person tour, do you record them for the posterity of the garden on online or no? No, that would drive me to the brink of insanity. Okay. So people have to be fair, there fair. Yeah. actually uh, <laughs> on the day of the tour. Uh, if I can, I want to talk about three gardens if I can, because there's another story that I would like oh, to tell. Oh, yes, do go. Okay, thank you. So if I, I'm looking at the uh, garden tour list, the view of the 22 gardens, and there's this garden in Berkeley, it's Ruth Rogow's garden. So this is my friend, Ruth. I have known Ruth for, I don't know, 16 years. We've homeschooled our children together and we're dear friends. And and so my friends have heard me for many years talking about native plants and the importance of native plants. And they were like, uh -huh, uh huh. And I think that they always thought it's kind of like I was into being a Hare Krishna or something, that it was fine for me, but they weren't going there themselves, even though, you know, Ruth would do anything for me. And so during the pandemic, when uh, we, 
you know, switched gears and had the uh, virtual tour. Doug Talmy was our keynote speaker. And Ruth and and another friend of mine also who was in the same category as Ruth of like just not being interested in native plants, they heard Doug Talamy speak and they were so inspired. They both told me we're putting in native plant gardens. So Ruth did the tremendous amount of work on her yard. She put in a native plant garden and she had it on the tour last year and she's on the tour again this year. So she has a garden in the flats in Berkeley uh, that's been planted with natives and it's really just beautiful. This is Cultivating Place. We're speaking this week with gardener and garden tour organizer, Kathy Kramer, a single woman whose endeavors to raise the gardening bar in her region and raise awareness around gardening with the native plants of your area has encouraged and inspired hundreds of gardens and gardeners in California's Bay Area and now the world. Kathy's Bringing Back the Natives Garden Tour, which has online and virtual components for interested gardeners beyond the Bay Area, is celebrating its 19th year. We'll be back for more after a quick break. Stay with us. Hey, it's Jennifer. You know, I think of the other ways we can demonstrate and invest in the aggregated success and positivity of one garden at a time. And I want to circle back to the mention of the Garden Conservancy's Garden Futures Grants. I had the great honor and real pleasure of serving on this grants committee last year. And not only was I in the company of other really interesting and motivated gardeners, horticulturalists, and horticultural leaders from across the country in assessing the grant proposals that had been submitted, but I got to read about gardens and gardeners I'd never heard of doing great place-based work where they were, also from across the country. These small public garden and public endeavors are growing the gardens and gardeners that are preparing to meet our collective future environmentally, economically, socially. To be able to take part in awarding them financial support to keep growing meant the world to me. And so I'll echo Kathy Kramer's words and the words of so many other gardeners in our world. Even if and when, in some stage of your life, you might not have a piece of ground to grow on, you can plant a pot, you can volunteer, you can donate or vote for the gardened future we want to see flourish, full of fertility, diversity, and open access. So be it. I'm Jennifer Jewell. This is Cultivating Place. And we're back now to our conversation with Kathy Kramer, the founder and organizer of the Bringing Back the Natives Garden Tour in California's Bay Area. As we come back, Kathy is describing some of the far-reaching ecological benefits of native plant gardening for habitat, for resource use, and for pure pleasure. The Ptolemy's research has shown that birds really need 70% or more native plants in order to successfully breed in an area. And that's because almost all baby birds, 96% of them, he says, require caterpillars uh, for their chicks, thousands and thousands and thousands of them to raise a clutch of chicks. And caterpillars, which come from butterflies and moths, um, can only... Uh, be raised can only um their their eggs can only be laid on very small numbers of local native plants like very specific native plants uh if there aren't these plants then butterflies and moths can't lay their eggs and there aren't enough caterpillars for the baby birds to eat and then all the bad things happen when creatures try to reproduce in suboptimal conditions like uh, there are fewer eggs in the nest the baby birds have lower birth weights and there's higher mortality because the parents have to fly so far to be able to find enough food. So people, you know, 
should really shoot for they, what I suggest is that people consider taking the Marie Kondo approach to their gardens. <laughs> if um, if they love a plant and it, they should keep it, if it's a plant that their mother gave them or, you know, they especially love for some reason, they should have it. If people are gardening for vegetables and fruits, they should enjoy that and they should do it. But if plants really don't spark joy, then it would be a good idea to consider replacing it with a local native plant that does have ecological value. 50%, Doug says, is what we should be shooting for. 70% natives is even better. In my own garden, I have a dozen fruit trees and I have uh, herbs for uh, cooking with. So, you know, I, I get off the native plant thing too for a while. But this garden that I'm talking about, the third garden that will be on the tour this year is uh, in Moraga. It's Ann Chambers and Ed McAlpin's garden. It's a large garden, uh, 4,000 square foot backyard and a 2,000 square foot front yard. It was professionally designed and they are fantastic fruit gardeners. They have like 30 fruit trees in this garden. Wow. Uh, and uh, the rest that's not fruit trees uh, in the backyard anyway, was planted with mostly local California mm. native plants. Uh, and this garden is also one that's got green home features. So they'll be talking about their uh, Tesla solar roof tiles and their power wall batteries, uh, and their whole house fan, and they have an induction range. Uh, so this is a lovely garden, and um, it's got a mix of edibles and natives. Gotcha. Okay. And I, I love that, you know, I love that idea of, of looking at your garden and at least making the call. Like, if you just have a default plant palette out there because you don't do anything with your front garden and... Um, and it doesn't necessarily spark joy. There are some non-plant people out there. You could at least consider letting your default be beneficial to the wildlife and world around you, rather than being the default of Australian or New Zealand plants, which is so often what people get sold as drought tolerant. And drought, drought, can I just pop in here and say drought tolerant really is just code for plants from the Mediterranean, Australia, and South Africa. It does seem that way in, in California anyway, for sure. Yes. And the reason that it's not okay, people have often said to me like, oh, I have a great pollinator garden. I have so many bees and butterflies in my garden. But really probably what they have are mm -hmm. honeybees, which come from the Mediterranean. Um, so they're not supporting our local native bees. Um, but also you have to think that butterflies and moths can't lay eggs on right. those plants. And the analogy that I draw is what if you and I could have all the free coffee that we wanted from Starbucks, but we couldn't reproduce, right. we would soon have a population crash too. It's important not just to provide pollen and nectar, but also to provide places yeah. for uh, insects right. to reproduce and then to rejoice when we see caterpillars in our yeah. gardens. Yeah. And, and it is that full life cycle uh, that is so important. It's, and it's why we are saying, don't just plant a pollinator garden, plant a habitat garden, which allows for full cycles of multiple um, kinds of wildlife that are built on this, uh, this trophic cascade Um that Doug Tallamy is trying to get to that if you love birds, you need caterpillars. If you, you know, so this is, this is the paradigm shift. We're asking people to see and to then make and take action on in their gardens. Even if they're not gardeners, we ask them to do it. Yep. And I would say it goes even further. It's not if you love birds, it's if you love your children well, yeah. and your grandchildren and your unborn grandchildren, then you should be gardening with California native plants. Because I'd like to read this quote from the American Bird Conservancy. The biodiversity crisis has come to our backyards. In less than a single human lifetime, 2.9 billion breeding adult birds have been lost from the United States and Canada across every ecosystem and including familiar birds. To put it another way, We've lost more than a quarter of our bird life since 1970. Scientists have identified habitat loss as the biggest overall driver of bird declines. And, you know, that's like terrible news. But then the good news about it is that for those of us who have homes, we have the opportunity to make a change. We don't have to wait and see what the Democrats and Republicans are going to do. We can do it right here in our right, own gardens. Right. 
Uh, and if you don't have a home, you can volunteer at a restoration site. And uh, if you can't go out and do physical things, you can lobby local government to be planting native plants uh, in their parks and to plant native plants as street trees and to plant them in front of government buildings. There's a lot that all of us can do to uh, create habitat right here where right. we live. And of course, there are listeners from all over the world right now. So the point is not to plant California native plants, but to plant those locally important plants where you live, wherever that might be. And if you're not sure where to get started, go to the Xerces Society, go to your native plant society, go to a good botanic garden with native plant display gardens in your region and just start doing your homework because it's actually really fun. And when you build all of this life into your garden, you will fall in love with it in such a completely different way. Now, one of those ways is attracting all of this lovely life that Kathy is talking about. And that can sometimes be confusing, like which plants does this butterfly need or which plants or which caterpillars, you know, are are the best for the plants and the birds in our area. And Kathy has come up, as, as I believe the Xerces Society has as well, with some very important kind of keystone flashcards, as it were, that help you to identify which plants provide larval food sources for which insects, which then helps support all of those birds and butterflies and everything else we like to see in our gardens. Tell us about these keystone sort of flashcards, Kathy. Well, after hearing Doug Tallamy speak, I realized that I had been saying for many years, you should garden with native plants, but certain native plants are the ones that hold the ecosystem together. They are the plants that the most butterflies, most species of butterflies and moths can lay their eggs on. Really what we want is a backbone in our gardens of keystone species plants. And I'd like to just say for a moment here, because I want to be sure and get it in. If you are considering putting in a local native plant garden, you should find a designer that you know specializes in designing native plant gardens. If you just get a designer that doesn't, then it's a high likelihood, a very high likelihood that you are not going to get a native plant garden because people design with the guard with the plants that they are familiar with. And I've just been out so many times. I went out yesterday to somebody who thought she had a native plant garden and she didn't. So it's important to get good advice from somebody who's got a track record and to look up your plant list, your suggested plant list and see where are they from. You can search on that plant and you can find it on the internet and see where it comes from. But I digressed. So we're back now to the native plant cards, the uh, Keystone Spot cards. Well, I wanted to figure out a way to help people get, realize what the Keystone plants are and uh, to see them in place in this year's garden tour. Uh, so with a colleague, Jennifer Durking, the amazing Jennifer Durking, who um, worked on these cards really, and she built them uh, in the garden tour this year and up on the website. So very soon I'm going to have them up available for free download, downloading from the garden tours website. We have uh, cards on 40 different keystone species um, from oaks to ground covers that have a picture of a butterfly or moth that can lay egg on that plant, a picture of that plant in flower, and a picture of the caterpillar that, um, if you're lucky, you'll be able to see on that plant um, so that people are drawing the idea of our gardens as being important to the ecology of our areas and that insects need them um, and that we should be you know, really feeling very happy when we see caterpillars in our garden. I just found one in my leaf litter the other day. It was less than a quarter of an inch long, bright green, curled up on a leaf. And it was so exciting for me <laughs> to see it in my garden since that's what I've been. I took a picture of it. It's like a baby photo. Uh, so uh, among these cards, you know, the uh, top cards are uh, oaks, are the powerhouses uh, in many places uh, across our country, certainly here in California. Uh, so we feature a number of different oaks on the cards and perennials, uh, ground covers, herbaceous plants. Um, so they are, they're going to be a great yeah. resource when they're out there. We're still working on them now. And the first printing will take place this spring. And I think the other thing that 
like happens is when you see that this caterpillar isn't just eating your leaf, but it becomes this lovely moth or this lovely butterfly fly, and where you see the birds that it feeds, it all of a sudden loses its like terrible human deployed moniker of pest and becomes friend and neighbor and you know community member rather than pest and that is a beautiful illumination for any gardener to experience i think and you know just to clarify that the the idea of a keystone species has long been integral to ecology and ecologists and its idea is that if you remove this one species whether that's a plant or an animal in the ecosystem the whole ecosystem suffers from that loss, is disrupted from that loss. And so, you know, every region and every ecosystem has its different keystone species. Um, but the matrix of life they support is just such a beautiful web to learn more about. Kat? I would agree. And I want to say that 30 years ago, when my own garden was lawn and Himalayan blackberry and ivy and South African plants, there was really nothing much going on here ecologically. I have a small lot. It's 5,000 square feet. But since we converted our garden to native plants, we've seen 30 species of birds in yeah. our backyard. Yeah, it's it's phenomenal. It is phenomenal. Plant it and they will come. So, Kathy, as we come to our end and you you think about how your work has very very beautifully cultivated this community of people who are growing their gardens differently. And then you sort of cast your mind forward. What are what are your greatest hopes for how it continues to grow and change minds and hearts and gardens? Well, I see native plants as being a hope for the future as all of us can change the plants in our own gardens, or we can volunteer to help out at restoration projects, or we can lobby local government. Um, and if all of us devoted at least part of our gardens to native plants, we could be, we would be increasing habitats for birds and butterflies and bees and other species of native wildlife that need it. And we'd be creating a better world for our children and our grandchildren and ourselves to enjoy. And I have this dream that one day as I drive down the street, I would be seeing mostly local native plants, not mostly non-native plants, that we would be actually creating habitat and bringing nature back to the places that we live. And that would be an amazing thing to have happen. Amazing. Thank you very much for being a guest on the program today. I am so excited about this year's tour and just congratulations and thank you for the work that you do. Thank you so much. And thank you for having me on your program today. I was really happy to be invited. Kathy Kramer is the founder and organizer of the Bringing Back the Natives Garden Tour in California's Bay Area. First organized in 2005, this year the tour includes an entire weekend of virtual tours in April and an in-person tour in May. Speaking of plants and place, this week we look forward to spring everywhere with garden tours and garden offerings rising to meet us where we are. And while much of our gardening for beauty and for habitat revolves around the perennial plants, shrubs, and trees that form the foundational elements of any ecosystem or garden, this week, let's revel in the plant playground that are our native annual flowers of spring, wherever you may be. Most ecosystems have their native annual displays in spring and summer. California, as a floristic province, is, however, notably rich in these spring annuals, creating those vast sweeps of color that paint our mountain slopes, 
foothills, valleys, canyons, and creeks in spectacle, which is shared in images around the world, especially in years deemed to be super blooms, which bring people from thousands of miles away to witness this natural wonder. Annual plants who germinate, grow, bloom, are pollinated, set seed, and then subside back into the soil from whence they emerged get all of their above-ground growing life work done in an amazingly swift amount of time, sometimes just days or weeks and sometimes a few short months. Of course, they're known as annuals because they complete their entire life cycle in one year, but much of this year is spent as dormant seed, waiting for the time, the place, the conditions to be just right. One of the interesting aspects being researched more and more by pollination ecologists specifically is the importance of annuals to specialist native pollinators, notably specialist bees who have co-evolved with these annual plants in their profusion, however fleeting their season. While there are many, many iconic annual flowering species, from lupins to salvias, larkspurs to castileas, among the most famous are certainly the genus Escoltsia, broadly referred to as the California poppies. The type species, Escoltsia californica, is native throughout the state, but north all the way to southern Washington, to Nevada, Arizona, New Mexico, and south to northwestern Baja, California. Escoltsias generally are abundant across much of the U.S., and according to Shannon Still, the Director of Science and Conservation at the UC Davis Arboretum and Garden, the California poppy was first described by European botanists on a voyage along the west coast of North America in 1816, when Adalbert von Chamiso collected the type species for California poppy in the hills of the Presidio in San Francisco Bay. Chimiso's close friend, Johann Eskoltz, was on the journey and inspired the plant's name. The California poppy became the official state flower in 1903, and other species and varieties of the genus were subsequently collected and described. Over time, names for these spring annuals have also proliferated, and according to research summarized by Shannon Still, Currently, botanists use 187 names and 160 typed specimens to describe the genus. Of these names, 94 are considered synonyms for E. californica, 9 are synonyms for E. mexicana, and 20 are synonyms for Escoltsia cespitosa. In the Jepson E. flora, there are at least 10 species and subspecies, and of course, going back all the way to that first European collection, there have been myriad hybrids bred for color, for size, for adaptability in gardens around the world. And this has resulted in a profusion of flower seed mix offerings from growers and suppliers all over the world. If you live within the native ranges of these annuals in the poppy family, Papaveraceae, across Western North America, please be careful of planting hybridized seed grown from outside of your own range, as planting these could contaminate the native poppy genetics of your area. But if you're lucky enough to live within the native ranges of any of these glorious colorful annuals, you're likely able to source locally native seeds from growers and other gardeners in your area. Picked fresh, these little California poppies, sometimes as big as five inches across, can last for days in a vase or an arrangement, and in the garden, they can have a bloom time of four to six weeks. Bees love these flowers for their abundant pollen, although interestingly, Escoltsia typically produce very little nectar. 
But the sight of a bee curling around the pollen-laden anthers in the golden cups is a spring treat that will have you collecting your own seed year after year to distribute each fall in hopes of your own super bloom each spring. These are some of my favorite annual spring flowers. But what about you? What are your favorites in your region? I'd love to hear. Send me an email cultivatingplace at gmail.com or leave me a note on Instagram in this week's post. Cultivating underscore place is where you'll find me there. Join us again next week when we continue Women's History Month and revisit a conversation that moves me still and which helps to seed the early growing season in front of us, both metaphorically and literally. Diane Wilson and her growing work is the author of the novel The Seed Keeper, which covers seeds, history, and the many faces of what it means to be human. Join us again next week for this. Cultivating Place is a co-production of North State Public Radio, a service of CAP Radio, licensed to Chico State Enterprises. Cultivating Place is made possible in part by listeners just like you through the support button at the top right-hand corner of every page at cultivatingplace.com. The program is also made possible through the generosity of the Caddo Shaw Foundation and through support from the Garden Conservancy. The Cultivating Place team includes producer and engineer Matt Fiddler with weekly tech and web support from Angel Haracha. We're based on the traditional and present homelands of the Machupta Indian tribe of the Chico Rancheria. Original theme music is by Ma Muse, accompanied by Joe Craven and Sam Bevan. Cultivating Place is distributed nationally by PRX, Public Radio Exchange. Until next week, enjoy the cultivation of your place. I'm Jennifer Jewell.